Wow, Chris, ready to go. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the many years that you have shared your gift with us, your church family. And it's amazing to see how God has fine-tuned, of course, with your many hours of practicing as well. And so we just thank you and so grateful, and we look forward to hearing you next week. I want to thank you. Last week, you all prayed for me, and um, I had my interview this week. Thank God I was able to finish my paper. I must confess, I almost gave up and said it was just too difficult but I had a good friend who talked me off the ledge. And I passed with the caveat that I have to redo my paper. There's a few things that they want to be different in that paper, but at least this time they're not telling me, take another class. So thank you, thank you. I felt all your prayers and encouragement, and I'm so grateful for this church family. As many of you know, that I've been the or in the ordination process for some time now. Completing the final pieces of this has been a struggle. Many of you know that I was diagnosed last year with coronary artery disease, which just came out of nowhere. It's unusual for someone with low blood pressure, low cholesterol, and no heart issues in the family, no history at all, to have an 80% blockage in a major artery but I did, and thank the Lord he got me into the doctor. It was a fluke how I even got in and got it done, and uh, they were able to put in a stent, which they said was caused by inflammation due to stress. So that stress is a big deal. So because of these health issues in life in general, I felt I either needed to postpone ordination or maybe not even continue. I was tired and weary. I was weary from school, from ordination, from work, and life in general. And it felt like a huge burden to accomplish what I was doing. And I was wondering if it was worth the amount of stress that I was experiencing. I kept thinking to myself, how can I be walking with the Lord and have this close, intimate relationship with Him and be so stressed out. I know that I'm called to serve, and I've been doing it faithfully for almost 24 years now. I love my job, I love ministering to each and every one of you, but I knew in my heart that I should not be this weary. In the midst of my weariness, I kept pushing and moving forward, pushing, 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 and I knew that I needed rest but I wasn't giving myself that luxury until I couldn't take it any longer and I had to hit the pause button. I decided to put everything on hold and take some time away. And thankfully, through the generosity of one of our church members, I was able to go for four days to their beach house right on the beach. And I went completely off the grid. No TV, no Netflix, no phone, no text messaging no internet, nothing like that at all. And I didn't even check any email while I was away, so completely off the grid. And I also chose that time to fast so that I wouldn't think about what I was gonna eat and where to go to eat. And I'll tell you, 
It was a sweet, sweet time with the Lord because my focus was not on anything else but him and his word and what he had to reveal to me those few days. At this time, I was uh, studying the book of Matthew for an exegesis class uh, at Fuller, and I was, had been trying to come up with a scripture. What was I gonna write on for that final paper? And the Lord had given me Matthew 11:28 through 30, and it was so perfect for what I was dealing with. The Lord revealed to me those four days that I needed to learn what this passage meant, and I needed to experience it for myself before I could come talk about it or teach anyone else what this means. I needed to live it. So listen to our passage from Matthew 11:28 through 30. Come all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for, for you and how you reveal things to us at the most timely t opportunities and that you teach us. You never leave us to ourselves. And I pray this morning that these words I speak would be your words and they would be received in the ears of your people the way that you want them to, to go down into their hearts and take root. May we know that you are our life source, that you are the breath we breathe each and every day. May I honor you and glorify you this morning. Amen. So here's a little background for us from my exegesis. That's like taking things out of the Bible and interpreting, learning what the backstory is. And so Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, gospel means good news. So the good news that Matthew is writing about Jesus Christ was one of the favorite books in all of church history because in it, Matthew writes so much about Jesus's teachings. Um, he refers to a lot of Old Testament texts and how they came true. The prophecies were fulfilled in his uh, gospel. His audiences were the churches that he was working at, and so it helped shape their lives and their practices as they followed Jesus. Theologian Dale Bruner shows us how the four parts of this verse summarize the first 12 chapters of Matthew. And in the Matthew 1 through 4 is, come here to me. It's the birth of Jesus, uh, John's revealing the Messiah, and then take my yoke upon you. As I taught in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Learn from me, as you saw from my sermon, from the miracles and the mission in chapters 8 through 10. And then, because I am gentle and simple in heart, as you are learning from my person, now in chapters 11 and 12. Bruner calls these first chapters of Matthew's gospel the Christ book. 
he points out that particularly in chapter 11, two-thirds of the discourse here is Christological, meaning that it's all about Christ, theology of Christ. And he divides it into three paragraphs identifying Jesus as the promised Messiah, the coming judge, and the present Savior. So I recommend, it's 30 verses, quite long. I recommend that when you go home, you read chapter 11. See what I'm talking about. So in the beginning, it's identifying Jesus as the Messiah, and it opens up with John the Baptist, who, if you recall, was Jesus' cousin. He lived in the desert. He wore camels, uh, hair clothing. He ate locusts and honey, kind of a strange guy. But he preached a message of repentance, and that the kingdom of heaven had come near. So people were coming and repenting of their sins, and he was baptizing them. He was the herald, the mouthpiece for Jesus' coming, uh, the long-awaited Messiah. And to fulfill the scriptures, John baptized Jesus, and as he did, the Spirit of God descended down on Jesus like a dove, alighting on him, and they heard a voice from heaven saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. As we continue in the chapter, we find that there's growing opposition to Jesus' ministry now. John the Baptist is imprisoned for publicly calling out Herod for committing adultery and marrying his brother's wife. And he's sitting in prison wondering, well, if this is a long-awaited Messiah, why am I sitting in jail? Isn't he supposed to set the captives free, free those that are imprisoned? So he sends out his disciples to ask Jesus if he's the one to come or should they wait for someone else? And Jesus sends them back telling them, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised, the lepers are healed, the deaf hear, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. So all these prophecies have been fulfilled, and if anyone takes offense at that, at this, let it be so. That's how Jesus felt about that. Jesus didn't come to fulfill what they all expected. They all expected a warrior Messiah, someone that was going to free them from the oppression of the Romans being under the Roman rule. And so that's what their idea was. But that was not Jesus' mission at this time, which caused so much frustration. Even John is wondering what's going on. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who don't stumble because of this, because it's not the way that you expected and you're not offended by what I've come to do. Sometimes we expect certain things about, from Jesus, and it doesn't turn out the way that we expect. So I hope we can pivot quickly and not hold Jesus accountable for how we think he needs to act. Then the first time we see Jesus as the coming judge is after this, where he pronounces woes on uh, unrepentant cities of Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. He had gone in and done so many miracles, healing people, bringing people back from the dead, all these wonderful miracles, and they didn't repent. And so he had said, if these were done in cities of Tyre and Sidon, the people would have repented with sackcloth and ashes 
And he says, it'll be better on the day of judgment for Sodom than it will be for you. After these judgment oracles, we see the present Savior. Jesus speaks of the Father concealing the truth of his identity from the wise and revealing it to children. Then surprisingly, he gives an invitation to discipleship, indicating that the door is still open and that all that remain are invited. Nowhere is this invitation to follow Jesus more personal and tender than here. Previously in the other books and gospels, Jesus has said, come follow me or come after me. But in this passage, he says, come to me. Not come to God, come to me. Jesus presents himself as a fully authorized representative of God. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is truth in a person. As I studied this chapter, I was confused as to why Jesus' invitation followed his pronouncement of the Father revealing and concealing the truth of his identity and then going into, come to me. It just didn't seem to fit. And so right before it, this is what it says. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So it didn't make much sense at the time, but looking at the whole message and learning that even though people were skeptical of who he was, even though they were unrepentant, even though they had other expectations, even though they were too wise and arrogant in their own eyes, Jesus came to offer himself. He is full of grace and mercy to all these people, to all of us. As I kept meditating on the verse, God revealed that I kept leaving out a most crucial part. The second verse 9, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, which is vital in this passage. Jesus is not telling us he's going to give us a kind of rest that all you're going to do is lie around and do nothing. He's created each and every one of us with a purpose. There's work to do. Philippians 2.10 tells us we are God's handiwork, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared from long ago. Each one of us is called in one way or another. It may not be to direct ministry, but we are each called as followers of Jesus Christ to serve him in such a way that we are blessing and helping other people, always pointing them to Jesus so they would come to know him as well. Jesus is telling us, take my yoke upon you. So Richard, can you put a picture up there of a yoke? 
The Lexham Bible Dictionary gives us a few ways to understand what a yoke is. It's an instrument made from bent wood that was placed around the neck of animals or persons. A mark of slavery often used for animals, but more prominently used in biblical literature for humans. It's used metaphorically to refer to the responsibilities of slaves. The biblical relevance of a physical yoke used in ag agriculture, slavery, and the military became a symbol relating to burden in biblical texts. Both positive and negative aspects of this symbol were used by biblical writers. A harsh yoke could refer to oppressive burden of slavery, while an easy yoke could refer to one's burdens being lightened. Historically, the people at this time understood the yoke as following the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. God's law found in the Torah laid out everything for the Israelites, his people. He rescued and delivered them from Egypt. God made a covenant with them. God was their God, and they were his people. He would never leave them. He would always help them, and these are the things that they needed to do. Follow these laws, such as the Ten Commandments. He also gave other laws for how to live and how to live with one another. However, through the centuries, the nomism of the Pharisees or legalism of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, added more and more regulations, making life so burdensome for the Israelites. The yoke was a common metaphor for the law, both in Judaism and the New Testament. But Jesus instead was inviting people to discipleship. Jesus says, you're not taking my yoke on you, not with what the Pharisees have stipulated, not with what has been told to you. All these legalistic requirements that have been added weigh you down. But take my yoke on you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I will not require all that the religious teachers require from you. There is a way to live, but my way gives you life and freedom, and I will set you free. So in this intimate invitation, Jesus offers us rest for our souls. Coming to him as Lord and Savior, finding salvation so we can enter his rest from the burden of sin in our lives. For the penalty of sin is death, as it tells us in Romans. And how can we remove that burden? That's why God came down in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, to redeem his people, to bring them life and set them free from sin and death, giving us rest through salvation. In coming to Jesus and putting on his yoke, we find salvation and rest for our souls in that relationship with Christ. This is our initial coming to Christ. But what about all those who already know Jesus as Savior and Lord? I believe there's another way to look at this verse, which is why the Lord revealed this to me at such a difficult time in my life. A yoke was a piece of equipment designed to make the task easier. It would be put around two oxen to plow the field. Generally, one ox was older and more experienced or more strong, stronger than the other one. And so by yoking the two together, 
Um, they would go in the direction of the one who was stronger or who know, knew more on how to plow, plow the field. And the stronger one would carry the brunt of the weight. So when Jesus tells us, take my yoke upon us, it's because Jesus knows where he's taking us. He knows the road ahead and what he's planned and proposed for each one of us. And he's going to show us the way because he is strong and powerful and lightens the weight of those burdens for us. All we need to do is follow him. We need to allow him to show us the way and to lead that way. When we talk about God's will being done, are we truly allowing God's will to be done in our lives? Or are, are we asking God to bless whatever we will? Lord, please bless this. I want to do this for you. I want to do that for you. Or these are the things I'm planning in my life. I want to accomplish these things and get this done. Will you bless me? Will you help me? But is that what the Lord really wants? Have we gone to him first to see if this is part of his plan for us? There's a lot of good things out there that we could do for the Lord. Is that what he's called you and I to do? Sometimes like the Pharisees, we add much more to what is expected of us and others. We make life toilsome. Our culture requires us to be the best at everything or at least appear that way. We're higher achievers and we don't rest until we have accomplished something that we are proud of or that others will praise us for. We are living these days at breakneck speeds and we are weary. Is this what Jesus wants for our lives? Is this what he created us for? As I contemplate this verse for myself, I think of rest as needing a vacation or the absence of work. So it seems contrary for Jesus to give us his yoke to take on more work. Bruner says it's like adding affliction to the afflicted. I realized that I was not focusing on verse 29. As I said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus wasn't going to place that yoke on me. He's not going to place that yoke on you. We have to take his yoke and put it on and then learn from him. He gives us a new way to live, his way. It's all in here. To come to Jesus and never open this, we will never have an idea of who he is and what he's done and how we should even live our lives. The Bible is living and active, it tells us. It tells us everything we know. It equips us. It teaches us. It rebukes us. It helps us in everything that God has created for us to do. When he preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, he told the people 
how they were to be his followers. He spelled it out for them. It was so countercultural, but the way he said in which to live was what was going to give them fullness of life, would give them rest. And it's the same for us. They had to live a particular way. He told them how they would be blessed in that way. He was calling them. What Jesus said in that sermon is not an easy way to live. And yet this is what Jesus calls all his disciples and his followers to do. So when he tells us that if we take our yoke upon ourselves, that it's easy and light, that it won't be heavy and burdensome, he knows what's going to work for this life for each of us. Because he knows every single detail about each of us and how he has made us and what we respond to, what we receive, and how we work. How would he not know? Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount will develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will bring us more rest than how we have been living. We can't avoid the burdens and trials of life. They're there. But putting on Jesus' yoke equips us to face them, training us to live in his presence each and every moment as a way of carrying those burdens. Like that stronger ox will lighten our load, Jesus lightens that load because he carries the brunt when we stay connected to him, as if we're yoked together, we're going in the direction he's taking us, making our work easier. It's like that song, Jesus Takes the Wheel. How many of you guys know that? I know my country friends need to know <laughs> that song. It's like driving a car. If we don't know where we're going, we shouldn't take the wheel. Jesus should be the driver, and Jesus knows where he's taking us in our life, so we need to let him take the wheel. Once we enter in a relationship with Jesus, he generally doesn't whisk us away to our heavenly home. He leaves us here to continue what he started, to proclaim the good news that the kingdom of heaven has come near and know that others too can find rest for their souls. He gave us a commission, the great commission, therefore, and therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you till the end of the age. Jesus is with us always. As my mentor puts it, we're on kingdom assignment. We are called to be kingdom people. She says, I'm here because the Lord assigns me to carry out kingdom purposes. She considers everything. She measures whatever she's going to buy, whatever she's going to do, whatever she has, by the assignment that she is on. She says, that doesn't mean I won't ever spend any money on myself or get some nice things, because sometimes that's what the Lord wants to give me. He wants to give me a gift. 
but he wants you to enjoy things, but not at the expense of expanding his kingdom here on earth. Through this study and time, I've been blessed to reflect on what this means as the Lord has revealed where I have gone astray to feel so overwhelmed and burdened. Everything we do must be according to God's standards, his desires, and his ways. We can't keep piling on additional tasks for selfish or selfless reasons because they may not be meant for us to carry. The Lord has already planned and purposed a life for each of us long ago, as it says in Ephesians 2.10. We need to stay close and connected so we know what it is. One of my favorite verses I learned when I first came to know Jesus was John 15.5. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to stay connected to the Lord Jesus always. Amen.